Hey, what's up? It's Gustavo Ariano, and today we take on an issue in Los Angeles that voters care a lot about, homelessness. We partnered up with my other audio bosses over at KCRW for a live mayoral debate last week with some of the city's top candidates for the top job. It was a final group debate before the primary on June 7th, and in our debate, three candidates talked a lot about a housing-first approach and in general took a super progressive tone on the issue of homelessness. I moderated alongside KCRW housing and homelessness reporter Anna Scott, and along our questions, we got audience questions and questions from people who are currently unhoused. Our conversation has been edited for length and clarity, but if you want the full unedited version, you can get it online at latimes.com slash debate. So let's get to it. And just so you know who's who, the kickoff question was asked by Anna Scott and answered by Karen Bass first, then Kevin DeLeon, and then finally Gina Viola. Here's Anna. Housing is a human right. Why yes or why no? Uh, I do think housing is a human right, just like I think the right to food, shelter, education, health care are all human rights. When we live in the richest country in the history of the world, there's just no excuse for us not to have enough housing, education, health care, et cetera, for our population. I concur as well, 100%, that housing is a universal right. It's, it's a human right. This is one of the wealthiest cities on planet Earth, the city of LA. The state of California is the fifth largest economy on planet Earth. Right. And of course, the US is the most powerful economy in the history of humanity. The very fact that we have more than 41,000 people living on our streets, our sidewalks, our alleyways, in their cars, in our parks, leaves us with a profound indelible mark of shame. Obviously, we have embedded within our economic systems deep inequities that has had a profound impact on working people, but in particular, people of color uh, in Southern California, in Los Angeles. And that has become much more polarized, especially with the coronavirus. So I think that Whoever becomes the next mayor clearly has to move heaven and earth to make sure that we can provide accessibility, affordability to those who are very low income and middle income, and obviously those who are currently unhoused. Absolutely, housing is a human right. And until we change policies to reflect that fact, we will continue to have people living on our streets. We can say housing is a human right, but if we don't do anything to change the policies, that you know, U.S. housing policy is deeply baked in racism. It was created for white wealth building while extracting wealth from black people in particular and people of color in general. So we need to not only say housing is a human right, but we need to make housing a human right. That's the first step to solving this crisis. It's an easy question to answer. How do you think politicians in Los Angeles have dropped the ball on that, on something that's so supposedly fundamentally uh, an issue, you know? By not having housing first policies. Right? We send out outreach workers to deliver meals, to check on people, but we don't have housing for them. We have very limited transitional places for people to sleep, but we don't have anywhere for them to end up eventually. And until we decide that we're gonna put housing first as the first priority to tackle this crisis, we'll just keep spinning our wheels. Quick lightning round. If you have to boil it down to one thing, or we'll start with the council member, What's the most important action you would take as mayor on this issue? And just one thing, we have the rest of the conversation, get into things, and not just one thing, but in one sentence. The first thing I do as chief executive of the second largest city in America is to do what I'm doing right now, which is to house the unhoused, both short-term, interim, as well as permanent housing. 
Representative, your one sentence. I would declare a state of emergency locally and push for a state of emergency nationally. Okay. Wait, a quick fault though. Mm -hmm. So state of emergency yep. would uh, give you the power to commandeer properties. It would allow you to temporarily rezone some properties. Wouldn't bring in, in any more money. How would you take advantage of that well, state well, of emergency? Uh, yeah, I appreciate you asking the question. That's exactly why I don't think a state of emergency locally is enough. There needs to be a federal state of emergency. The bottom line is we have to have a whole of government approach and I think that's one of the things that has failed. I think that we have had an attitude in the city, the county, the state, and the federal government is that we're going to reduce this problem. I think the attitude has to be that we're going to end this problem, that we have to have enough housing in Los Angeles and everywhere else to deal with our population. A federal state of emergency will allow a relaxation of several federal regulations that have to be relaxed, which we can talk about uh, in a minute. We'll get but it will it. also yeah. provide resources, a FEMA-style response. And what brings about a FEMA-style response is a state of emergency from the federal government. And I know we said one sentence, and now oh, I'm asking follow-ups that are requiring sorry. more, but we'll try to ensure equal time, even though we don't have individual clocks. But we'll do our best. But, Gina. The first thing I would do is assemble a paid council of unhoused people. So bringing in unhoused people to get into that issue, why? Because I've learned from working with the unhoused people directly what they truly want and need from us to be successful. There's no way for us living in homes to know what's best for those folks. And through my work with Streetwatch and my regular connection with my unhoused neighbors, I've learned far more about what the needs are than from LASA or any other agency telling me what they think the unhoused need. Kevin, do you see the, sorry, council member, do you see KDL, right? Yeah, KDL. <laughs> In this, you know, do you see the current council right now having that perspective that Gina just talked about, like you know, in talking to folks? I've been on the council now for one year and, and, and six months, and it's been very eye-opening. On, on one end, I will say that the council members, by far and large, are, are very knowledgeable on this issue, mm -hmm. more so than any elected official in the country, uh, to be quite honest with you. What has lacked has been a, a coherent vision. You can't do it piecemeal, district mm -hmm. by district. You have 15 districts. This is a city of 4 million. Some districts have more unhoused neighbors than others, but a piecemeal approach simply doesn't work. You need a coherent vision for the entire city of LA. And um, I will give credit because their knowledge is deep. It's steep without question, more so than the state Senate, more so than the state assembly, even members of Congress, I would say even county board supervisors. But the question becomes you have so many levers of power, the city, the county, the state, as well as the federal government and they simply haven't worked well together. Mm -hmm. They've actually been very disjointed. They've been misaligned, and we have wasted billions of dollars. We have to deal with the issue, what's in the immediate, which is housing, and it's a combination of both interim as well as permanent housing. But, but let me say this, and it's a little contrasting that there will ever be a federal state of emergency on the issue of homelessness. And the mm -hmm. reason why I say that is climate change is an existential threat. Uh, to humanity as we know it today, yet there's been no action, either symbolically or federal action, legislatively or executively through the White House. The issue of immigration reform, it's been with us now for going on 40 years, it hasn't happened. So I just don't see it in the foreseeable future at the federal level, given the dynamics, which Karen understands well, being mm -hmm. right in the middle of it between the Republicans and the Democrats and the executive branch, unilateral decision by the President Joseph Biden, 
uh, I, I doubt it highly that there will be a federal emergency. Do you want to respond to that quickly? Sure. Uh, you are in part absolutely right. If we had to deal with it legislatively, you're right on target. Where I do have faith, though, is that we have an administration that is, number one, committed on day one to equity and understands this issue and is willing to move on it. But here's the catch, because in order for there to be a federal state of emergency, it has to be declared statewide by the governor. So one of the approaches that I want to use is certainly to appeal to the governor to deal with the administration, but also to assemble a number of mayors. And I've already been reaching out to mayors now, especially the top 10 in terms of homelessness. I would be very active in the U.S. Conference of Mayors. And there are things that the administration can do. For example, the Secretary of Veteran Affairs, McDonald, was at the VA, and he has pledged to house 1,500 more people by the end of the year. I was in conversation with him, went to the VA with him, and he's been able to relax some regulations to get folks housed. So if there's the political will, the individual secretaries, there are things that they can do. Now, they, there is a some that would have to be dealt with legislatively, but there are some regulations. I'll use an example of HUD, for instance. There's vouchers. You know we have thousands of vouchers here, but we're not able to access and use all of them because there's regulations there. Some of those can be relaxed without having legislation. But if I had to depend completely on legislation, I'm right with you. Can I push back on that a little bit? Sure. So Gavin Newsom created a homelessness task force about three years ago, and it was a bunch of mayors and government officials. What was missing from that task force were organizations. Mm -hmm. It was solely government. So where has that organization, Mark Ridley Thomas was the president of that task force. And I've seen no accomplishments from it at all. And again, you talk about the council members knowing more about this issue. Houselessness is out of control. We have almost 60,000 people sleeping on the street. Right. So again, I don't hear any discussion about involving the unhoused and how we make our way out of this. And this is where lies the conundrum because Secretary the VA did come out mm -hmm. to West LA. It took him years. You know, even before him, before the administration, the previous administrations, whether it's Barack Obama or then President Donald Trump. And the fact that then Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger actually had to donate out of his own pocket for tiny homes on federal property and the VA just shows you that the executive branch and the various cabinet positions are not responding with a sense of urgency That's right. that it deserves today. On this discussion of the VA, one of the unhoused people that I spoke with in preparation for this is a veteran who's living in uh, a temporary shelter on the West Los Angeles VA campus. His name is Michael Williams. He's a Navy veteran. And you guys are really already addressing his question, but one of the things that he wanted to know is what Garcetti, when he was campaigning, he promised to end veteran homelessness. What are you gonna do to push things at the federal level to push things forward on actually getting that done. I agree with you. There are weaknesses there. The bottom line is that we cannot address this problem. We can't solve this problem unless we have federal support. So we have to push and make sure that we have that because you get funding from the federal government, but you also get a relaxation of regulations, but you also have to have the city and the county working hand in glove. And one of the structural problems, and this is something that could be dealt with on the local level, frankly, is that the city and the county do not want to work together. Perfect example is the settlement of the lawsuit that just happened with the LA Alliance. So the city saw, the city settles, and the city settled, and please tell me if I'm wrong, 
But the city settled that basically said, yeah, we'll give housing, or rather shelters, but only to people who are economically unhoused. If you are unhoused with substance abuse or mental illness, you have to go to the county. That's madness. If the alliance sued the city and the county, the city and the county should have settled together. I'm fortunate. I have deep relationships with each of the supervisors, as well as I've been working with the county for many years because of the policy areas I work on. But I also agree with Gina, because to me, the best policy is crafted when you have people who are most immediately impacted at the table. We'll be back after the break. I'm Anna Scott, KCRW's housing and homelessness reporter. I'd like to get the voice of, of an unhoused sure. Angelino into the conversation and, and focus more on city policy and what you guys would do as mayor. There, certainly the problems are there and we can diagnose them, but let's get into uh, We can city redirect policy. funds we have too. We don't need to rely on the federal government or the state government. The city of LA has an $11 billion budget. There's money to house people. Well, let's get into it. This first question that we're gonna hear from an unhoused person in LA is from Maria Demetrio in Koreatown. And she starts out here, what you're about to hear, she's gonna start by talking about what her rent used to be. So let's hear that now. The last apartment I had on Hobart between yeah. 5th and 6th, 718. Do you know how much that same unit is? 1,200. Still looks the same way. Why is rent so high? So Gina, we'll start with you. Why is rent so high? And I'm gonna add what will you do about it? So 75% of our rental stock now is owned by corporate and big landlords. And that's the problem, right? We have weakened our rent control. We, we barely have rent control. The affordable units we do have sunsets, right? They're, look at what's happening in Chinatown with the Hillside Via. Those elderly tenants, their rents tripled overnight because there is no protection in perpetuity with the affordable housing units. So we absolutely need to demand that all development have the maximum amount of affordable units in perpetuity, not with these 10 years or 20 years, because that's what we're seeing. We're seeing rents triple overnight. Things like Airbnb that were created to share your space, right? An extra room in your house, an in-law unit has turned into big business. There's lots and lots of vacant apartments and houses for Airbnb now. So that's what Maria is competing with. And so how would you do it? How would you ensure that everything that gets built has a maximum amount of affordable or housing. Even how if do it's you not getting public that? financing. How do you dismantle yeah, that? Well, systems, we have to Airbnb, go back to rent yeah. control. We have to go back to solid rent control in the city and we have to do a vacancy tax, right? Mike Bonin put forth the vacancy tax right at the beginning of the pandemic and city council shelved it for two years. Why would you shelve a vacancy tax for two years for something that could be very helpful? We have to disincentivize people for letting units sit empty. Right. Kevin, do you want to pick up on that? What I'll do is mandate affordable housing. It's just that simple. Whether it's very low income, whether it's low income, middle income, or workforce housing. But mandate it through inclusionary zoning or inclusionary what? Inclusionary zoning, exactly. You know, what that magic number is, whether it's 20, 25, whether it's 30, 35%. Because if you don't do it, today we have an over surplus. We have a surplus of 75,000 plus luxury market unit rates, right? Uh, units that are sitting empty right now. Anyone in this audience can go out there and rent if you want. The question is, can you afford it at above market rate? 
and they're sitting vacant right now. So you have to mandate through inclusionary with developers. Cool. If you don't mandate it, it's not going to happen. But you're on the city council now. If it's so easy, you just mandate it. Why haven't you done it already? Well, I actually am doing it, and believe it or not, for downtown Los Angeles, because that's the area that I have. So in the 2040 DTA plan, we expect maybe about 100,000 new residents in downtown LA. So that's what I'm actually pushing for, mandate inclusionary within downtown Los Angeles. Representative Bezzi, you were nodding your head now. Yeah, well, it's just that I don't think inclusionary zoning, especially, it's not that I disagree with it, I just don't think that it is enough at all to address the significant problem that we have. I think that we have an absolute emergency right now and that we have to deal with the 60,000 people who are unhoused and that I think that if you come to me and say you are going to build housing, especially for people that are unhoused, then you need to be absolutely fast-tracked. Not, not go to the front of the line. There needs to be a completely separate line and a completely separate process so that we can get housing built. So I worry that the inclusionary zoning model is just insufficient. We need to look at every possible way to build housing. And one of the first areas that I would look at would be land that is owned by the government on every level. There's hundreds of acres of land, and some of it is not you know, appropriate, but there is some that is appropriate. And, and we need to build, we need to increase the supply. Well, let me add that, obviously, as you accelerate permitting process with planning, mm -hmm. building the safety, LADWP, LA Fire Department, that's a given because the next mayor will curate each general manager and they have to work with his or her vision. Right. So you have to accelerate that process. However, if you don't mandate affordable housing, it doesn't happen miraculously because the market forces have already dictated if they go unchecked, the market forces always win. That's just the, been the history of this country. And that's why today you have a major supply of uh, luxury above rate housing. And coincidentally, you have 41,000 people within the city of LA living on the streets. And you have hundreds of thousands of people right now we're barely holding on right. by a shoestring right now. For not for an yeah. eviction moratorium, they would be living on the streets today. The eviction moratorium expired, sunsetted at the state level. They weren't able to pass it in Congress at That's the right. national level. Right. Joe Biden, through an executive order, tried to extend the eviction moratorium. The U.S. Supreme Court overruled mm -hmm. the President of the United States. We're the only major metropolitan city in America that still has an eviction moratorium. So if we didn't have it, you'd still have a tsunami of more folks falling into homelessness. So therefore, on the affordability side, when it comes to rentals, you have to mandate it. If you don't mandate it, the developers will dictate the supply in the city of LA. Well then, what are you going to do in the short term? Mandating it, having an inclusionary zoning policy, I imagine that takes time to implement. You're talking about new projects that are coming online that, that take time to build. If this deadline is coming up, this is a question for all of you, then what are you going to do when that moratorium expires to stop people from falling into homelessness? We need to eminent domain. We need to eminent domain empty buildings. We have lots of them. We have hotels, we have motels, we have all of the housing stock on the 710 freeway that shame on the state of California has owned for decades and let sit empty. I mean, this is just outrageous. But that's also a long process. Yes. Eminent domain, it's... Uh, takes a while that you'll probably get lawsuits, pushback. What do you do about this moratorium that's going to expire? Well, I think in the interim, when you're eminent domaining, we move people in. We just, we, we take action, right? It's time for action. I know it sounds outrageous, but that's what the reclaimers did in El Sereno, right? They very successfully 
took a house because it was a pandemic and folks were living in congregate shelters or in, in congregate areas and a couple of people were getting very sick. They took a home, they then took 11 more. They're now working with the state for a community land trust. These are things we need to do as a city. Why rely on activists to have to break a law and do it? May I say Why something? Can't... Because that's actually in my district in City 14, and those mm. abandoned homes were actually not habitable. They had rats, they have uh, a vector in there. Not all of them. Uh, they were very unsafe. And But the key thing is this. We passed legislation because, as we all know, they wanted to build the 710 freeway, the extension. It was during our time, yes, right? It was. Build a freeway through a community. Yep. At the end of the day, I was there, I put the final nail in that coffin where there will never be an extension through that community at all whatsoever. Now there is all that stock. Now we can legally secure that housing right now. And in this year's budget, I've actually put money to purchase all of those units. Now the key thing is, the law says now that we can purchase the units at the value they were originally purchased at in oh, the 60s as well as the 70s. Can't purchase it, it in today's be. valuation. So we have ability now to actually purchase those empty properties mm -hmm. and abandoned homes and convert them into what we all want, which is affordable housing. This is a very unique opportunity. There's nowhere, San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose, San Diego, Central Valley, Inland Empire, there's nowhere in the state of California that has such a large portfolio of real estate assets that, to your point, Gina, right, has been abandoned, yes. government owned by yes. Caltrans specifically. Now we have that opportunity. It'll be one of the largest affordable housing, not units, but developments in the history of the state of California, and that's within reach. Representative Bass, what about this eviction moratorium that's coming up that's going to expire? Uh, well, first of all, we need to do what we can to extend it, but I'm hoping, and, and I would imagine that you guys are doing that at the city level, which is getting money from the state. Kevin and I were in the state legislature at the worst time, but now with a budget surplus of what, $97, 97 billion, billion dollars, it should be able to be extended. And then on the federal level, of course, what we're trying to do is to provide an extra rescue package because we're still not out of COVID. You know, when COVID first started, I chaired the Congressional Black Caucus and I brought together the Black Caucus, Hispanic, Asian, and Native American caucuses. And we all joined forces and fought for and won uh, billions of dollars that would address the disproportionate impact that COVID was having both health and economically. And so some of the resources that we sent to the city that provided the resources for the tiny homes, room key and home key, we need to continue that. So I'm hoping that the city would get money from the state to continue the moratorium. But we have to also address, Gina, you mentioned the corporate ownership, but there are a lot of apartments that are owned by just families. I mean, that's mom and pop. And we have to make sure that they don't default. So we need to provide assistance for the owners as well, because the worst thing in the world would be to protect the renter and then the owner loses their property. And we don't want that to happen. Continuing Congresswoman with you on a more personal level, what's the closest encampment to where you live and how does that affect your perspective on all of this? And on that note, we also have audience questions about what you've, and, and this is a question I want all of you to answer, what all of you have done to personally meet with unhoused neighbors. And so please address that as well. Um, I think the closest encampment is on La Brea. 
would be the closest encampment to me, to where I live. Is it down the street, couple blocks somewhere? It's a few blocks away. Do you yes, interact yes. with the people there? I don't interact with the people in that particular encampment, no, but I've interacted with homeless people for many, many years. I worked as a physician assistant at County General Hospital and my patients every day were unhoused. When I started Community Coalition in 1990, because we were trying to address the problem then. In 1993, we were trying to take over motels because in the 8th City Council District, there were 54 motels and no tourists. And we thought that that would be a great way to deal with that. So many of my staff were formerly unhoused. My staff were formerly in their addiction or were gang involved or uh, coming out of the criminal justice system. So I've had many years uh, in, of involvement directly and indirectly with people who are unhoused. Gina, how about you? What's the closest encampment? So my closest large encampment was just banished under 4118. And I've lost track of several of the people that I've had relationships with for several years as a result of it. It's the one on Selma Avenue. And a fence has gone up because we're a city of fences now. They've made it wood with paint to look a little bit more palatable. But the tragedy is that I have built relationships with several people, not just myself, but others. We've built relationships with people and we can't locate them now. Some of these people were close to being matched with housing. Some of these people were waiting on us for medical supplies, other things, and we can't find them. Others were put in Project Room Key and the stories I'm learning about what's happening at Project Room Key, it's very carceral. You're not given a key. I don't know why they call it Project Room Key. They're supposed to have 60 seconds to answer their door. Folks just walk right in to their room, male or female. It's a very carceral solution right now, the way it is. Kevin, what about in your district? It's about eight blocks um, from where I live, but the encampment no longer uh, exists. Uh, they all have tiny homes right now, which is uh, north of Colorado on Figueroa. All of them are actually very happy. They get three meals a day. They have their own locked door. They can enter as they wish. They have showers, they have bathrooms, as well as washers and dryers. And I can tell you this, that a tiny home uh, is a hell of a lot better than living out in a tent, on sleeping on a cold slab of cement or asphalt, or for women who've been sexually violated on any given night, the only thing that protects them is a flimsy zipper. Because this is not theory, this is real life. Well, here's a quick follow-up about the tiny homes for you, and then we'll, and then we'll move on. But you know, I know from reporting, one of the reasons that people sometimes are enthusiastic about them is the privacy over a congregate traditional shelter. But now your district is one of the city council districts that's starting to require people to double up in these eight by eight shelters. And so are you concerned about that these are not gonna be an appealing option anymore? No, because the doubling up, when you make the reference to double up, that only means if they're a couple, uh, that only means that they want to do it. These are only couples. These are only relationships that exist. Folks can come together. More of the LA mayoral debate on homelessness when we come back. specific thing that you think LA Mayor Eric Garcetti did not do right on homelessness and how would you do that differently? Well, I think that really two areas that we haven't talked much about and that's substance abuse and mental illness. We have to deal with that as an issue. And, and let me just give you an example. 
There is a facility, a hospital, St. Vincent on Beverly Boulevard. It can house 344 people. The problem is, is that the federal government has a limitation on how many people you can have in a facility who have substance abuse or mental illness. 16 is the maximum number. So that hospital is sitting completely empty. It's in pristine condition, and it's being used for film location. We need to have the federal government waive those two regulations. And by the way, that hospital, I don't know if the city has entertained it, but I know that the owner is willing to lease it to uh, the city or the county. But that's a facility. The owner of that facility is the owner of the Los Angeles Times. Full disclosure. A multi-billionaire who should actually be giving that piece of property. So he hasn't he hasn't connected I, with you? I've, I've spoken with the council member of that district and he says he will not return their phone call. Well, you know what? Yeah. He'll return mine. Gina. When we're making these decisions about these, the tiny sheds, all of it, none of it was done with unhoused people in the room, right? This was something offered to them so they've been learning as they've gone, they've been discovering, they, there are things that are good, there are things that are bad, but you're not listening to that. You're deciding that you know best, you've put down these tiny sheds, it's much better than living in a tent, and that's that. We need to bring unhoused people in and hear from them what their experience is like in those sheds. And it it's something be... we can continually improve upon if it's a transitional solution. I've experienced homelessness in my early 20s. I slept you know, on friends' couches, I slept in my car. I actually slept in the office where I worked at for two years. When I grew up, we were always on the edge of homelessness, renting a room in an already carded house, renting a room at the bottom of a house in a basement. So expressing homelessness and housing insecurity is something that I know extremely well at a very personal, deep level. So engagement, not being paternalistic or condescending right. with our unhoused neighbors, but also moving with a sense of urgency because I believe if we, move, if we can move heaven and earth to build football stadiums and basketball arenas and shopping malls, then we can do the same thing for unhoused neighbors. And that's, so what's the that's specific that's thing that the current mayor you think did not do right? And what would you do different? I think that was, you were asking Karen that. Uh, I think she, she answered. She answered it already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're up. <laughs> no hablo inglés. Pues hablan español entonces. Ándale. No trates de hacer algo así. I can make some suggestions if you want. What I, what I would say is, I, I think what they did well, civic leaders as well as the mayor, politically, is they were able to persuade the electorate to tax themselves through yeah. a government bond, which is HHH. But the housing edict for LA is, or the doctrine, is how do we spend the most money and how do we take the longest time <laughs> to build housing for unhoused people? And that's why when it takes on average five years to open up that door and to have a family move in, that's why that's on the interim, you have to move very quickly because you can't let the perfect get in the way of the good. And for a lot of folks who live in a world of absolutes, in a theoretical world, there are people who are dying on the streets every single day. I don't believe it's either progressive as a Democrat or humane right. that we allow people to die and suffer in such misery because right. we're allowing the perfect to get in the so way of the good. How would you get it done so, faster so, and cheaper? But to the point on, on our, our chief executive, our, our current mayor, Eric Garcetti, the price points 
should have been decreased quite dramatically on hard costs, on soft costs, architectural fees, structural engineering fees. It should have gone, what Karen and I agree, it should have gone to the straight of the line on the mm -hmm. queue. VIP, concierge, it gets done in one month in terms of all the permitting process. LADWP, LA Fire Department, building the safety as well, uh, planning should have been working in concert with each other to accelerate the housing production. And it should have been done within a year. But the average is five years. Yeah, Gina, as a one non-politician here, and uh, the council member has already said, there's all these different competing agencies. Mm -hmm. You've used great metaphors of merry-go-round, right. different levers of power. You as a non-politician, how do you cut through all of this? The budget. The mayor has the say over the budget. And our budget is a moral document. And it says a lot about who we are as a city. The budget under Mayor Garcetti for the LAPD has increased 52% in the last 10 years. No other line item has seen that kind of increase. That's all that the city has prioritized over housing, over healthcare, over things that truly do keep us well and keep us safe. So that is something that needs to change. The city's approach to houselessness, like I said earlier, has been with sanitation and with LAPD. There's no budget for housing. There's no, we have not made it a housing first. There's nothing in this budget that says housing is a human right. So if we're not starting there, we'll just keep spinning our wheels. There's another question from an unhoused Angelino. Michael Williams has a question about the city's role in helping to end veteran homelessness, something that Mayor Garcetti promised to do during his election campaign. Williams stays at a shelter on the VA campus in West LA and is a vet himself. U.S. Navy, Desert Storm, Desert Shield veteran. Why isn't the VA being held more accountable for homeless veterans in the county? What is the plan and what are they going to do? Gina, I think it's abysmal that we put tiny sheds on the VA property. I don't understand there are barracks at the VA property that are sitting empty. This makes no sense whatsoever. At first, we opened up the parking lot to let them use their tents in the parking lot before there were sheds. So we absolutely have an, a responsibility to house those veterans in the housing that's there already. I don't know, Gina, because I'll tell you, the campus is big enough for tons of housing, but the housing that you're talking about that is there now probably reminds me of what you were saying, the housing in your area. I don't believe it's fit. I don't believe that it's safe. It's why would really we let old. It, why would we let it sit empty and get so run <laughs> no, down I mean, when I, we have I, people I, living on the streets? I, like I agree with that, but I don't think that it's right to put people in housing that is unsafe, no, that is dilapidated, and that needs to absolutely change. And so what needs to happen is, and this was outrageous, when I went there with the secretary, and they said that they had like 300 vacancies for veterans. So we're like, well, why are these people on the street if you have all these vacancies? Well, because we're processing them and we have this paperwork. That's crazy mentality. Put them in the house right. first. Then talk about whether or not they were they and meet qualifications, be and if they thing. don't meet qualifications, change the qualifications. Did you serve our country? Then you're qualified. That's what needs to happen. And you're right; it has been years. I mean, Kevin and I were dealing with this when we were in Sacramento, and they were using that VA property for all sorts of things that had nothing to do with the VA. I want to just piggyback off of this issue with the VA and that campus in West Los Angeles, which has been slated for a big project with homeless housing for many years. I mean, really, this traces back to 2005. It's a ridiculous timeline by almost any standard, and particularly Councilmember, Representative Bass, you guys have talked about turning to the federal government on this issue a lot, leaning on the federal government. Well, that's their track record. I'm curious to know, 
here in LA as mayor, what are you gonna do about land use, about siting shelters, about siting permanent housing, the things that are within your control? Yeah, let me say this. I'm the newbie to the city council, and in one year, I've been able to house 85% of unhoused people or shelter, in, in Northeast. Shelter, shelter and house? I, I think it's housing. Are you, it's inflating? Interim. No, are, are you including tiny homes? I think tiny homes, of course. I'm including okay. tiny homes, including uh, Project Home Key that's been converting right now into permanent housing. So it's a combination thereof in, in terms of housing. To me, definition of housing is when you have a roof over your head and not congregate shelter. Congregate shelter, I think we all agree, the vast majority of unhoused neighbors do not like congregate shelter. And I'm not a, a firm believer in congregate shelter. But in just one year, I built a house, 85% of unhoused people in Northeast Los Angeles. I built the largest tiny home village, not in LA or LA County or the state, but in the United States of America, ahead of schedule and way under budget. Listen, this is about leadership. You don't have to have a PhD on the drivers of homelessness. You don't have to be an MFT or LCSW on the issue of drug addictions, schizophrenia, you know, bipolar depression. You don't have to. But what you have to do is you have to be a doer. You have to be a doer. And I can tell you this, for example, the tiny home village, the largest off the 110 freeway in uh, Royal Seco, Highland Park, it was originally slated to be built in one year and two months. One year and two months. I said, no way. It's impossible because we have the crisis right now on our streets. It was built in three months. The other tiny home village that's in Eagle Rock, Southern California Edison owns, one of the largest investor owned utilities, owns part of that land, the county owns the other part, and the city owns the other part, rec and parks. Anyone would have said that's too complex of a real estate deal. At the end of the day, we worked out the deal. I actually met, had a meeting with the CEO, not the government relations director, with the CEO of Southern California Edison, investor-owned utility. And we landed a deal and we moved very quickly and now we have these tiny homes. And if you go to Eagle Rock, there's no one on the streets right now. They're all happy right now. They wanna get into permanent housing. There's no question about it. Mm -hmm. So it's adaptive reuse, it's taking commercial property that's sitting vacant because the definition of work and employment is gonna change quite dramatically mm -hmm. for those who have the educational attainment and the financial wherewithal to Zoom or Google, but not everyone does. So how can we quickly convert that and move quickly to build the housing units that are required to move folks off the street and into housing sooner rather than later? But that takes leadership ultimately at the end of the day. My challenge has not been the unhoused neighbors. They take the housing right away. My challenge has been every level of government and every bureaucracy that has gotten in the way. The mayor's seat in Los Angeles has historically been weak compared to other places. So given that, and given all these different agencies, uh, representative, how would you use your position to get as much power out of it as possible on this particular issue? Well, uh, I think the job is what you make it. If you decide that um, you are gonna be a weak mayor, that's what you're, you're gonna be. But I agree with Kevin, it's about leadership. It's about decisive leadership. It's about setting a tone. I would bring in all of my general managers. They would be very clear what the vision is, what the goal is. They would be held accountable to those goals. Any agent, any department that touches homelessness would have to work together. So I think that there is a way that you can send a message. But I also believe, frankly, that we need public participation and public support. I don't believe as, as much power as elected officials might have, it's not enough. 
in order to deal with this issue, we have to have the city understand, meaning all Angelinos understand that we are all invested in this problem. How well do you think this current council did towards that, Gina? Not at all. <laughs> I mean, I'm sorry, but to do it in silos the way they have, like if you look at Council District 4, she's basically turned her entire staff into outreach workers because she's recognized that this is the issue of our time, right? So she has actually successfully, more of CD4 is on a path to permanent housing than anyone else, but it was slow. It was a slow process. She had outreach workers that, you know, turned her staff into outreach workers who made connections with people, who heard from the unhoused people what they needed, you know, much to the chagrin of many housed people who were calling and terrorizing her day after day, when are you gonna get rid of these encampments? They disappeared slowly, but they are on a path to housing, lots of them. This is what we need to do citywide. And I think the mayor, having the power to present the budget, to me, is not a weak mayor. That's a strong mayor, right? You get to present the budget. And I would adopt the People's Budget Los Angeles. I would have a participatory budgeting session in each of the 15 city council districts with the city council person I plan to be a working mayor. I plan to go to city council meetings. I'm not just gonna flip the switch on the city council, on the city hall, you know, lights, because that's kind of what the mayor does now, unfortunately. You know, I heard him say at the beginning of his term that homelessness was his biggest concern. And that was the, the thing he'd worked on since he was an adolescent, frankly, as a volunteer. And I, I'm astounded at how many times I've heard him say that and how, what, it, what terrible condition this is in. So it, somebody has to have the political will at some point to hold everybody's feet to the fire, be it city council, be it a state that has a $97 billion budget surplus. A lot of that money came from Los Angeles. You'll be giving that back to us. What do you think of Governor Newsom's care courts proposal? This is the proposal that would allow court-ordered mental health or substance abuse treatment plans for people with severe that disorders. That scares me immensely. What I hear from that are mandated people going to prison. That's what I hear. We have a prison industrial complex in California that needs to be fed. And Los Angeles has been leading the way on decarceration. We've had Measure R, Measure J in LA County. We've had organizations like Dignity and Power Now, Curb, Justice LA. We have the biggest alternatives to incarceration in the county. So the jail population is actually going down. The prison population is actually going down. And what I worry with Newsom's mental health mandate is the plan is to fill these prisons back up with houseless folks, and it frightens me. Again, we need a housing-first approach. Do people need resources? Absolutely. But they need a house first, not a jail cell. Okay, Councilmember, now you can have your turn. What do you think of it? Um, I think it's a good start. I think the fact that on any given night in Los Angeles, and who hasn't seen this, someone who's naked running down the street, screaming at the top of his or her lungs, having a psychotic break, and what happens, there's no mental health services there. And what happens, folks call 911 because that's a reflexive move from folks and LAPD shows up. They do not have the training nor the expertise. And there is no facility for those individuals who are having severe psychotic breakdowns and living on the streets and you go to Skid Row and high acuity is especially high in Skid Row and throughout the city of LA. But it is inhumane and unfair for those who are severely mentally ill and now drug addicted with crystal meth and fentanyl to be living on the streets because they're not getting the treatment that they deserve and that they need. And they're not, this is not a step forward towards incarceration or prisons. 
that is completely inaccurate. And that's not what Governor Gavin Newsom is proposing at all whatsoever, to open up the prisons, whether it be Vacaville, San Quentin, or Pelican Bay, and have folks who are severely mentally ill go into the prison system. Karen? As I mentioned, I worked at County Hospital. I worked in the emergency room. I took care of people who suffered from mental illness. And I just think it is a tragedy that people can be on the street profoundly mentally ill. It is clear they cannot take care of themselves, and we don't take care of them. We leave them on the street to die, essentially. When I was looking at officer-involved deaths, this is nationwide, after George Floyd's murder, I looked at about 100 deaths, and I would say 30 to 40% of them were police responding to mental health calls that they are not trained to do at all. And in fact, they increase and agitate the individual. So I do think that we need to deal with people who cannot take care of themselves. And right now, all we have is a 72-hour hold. That is not enough. We bring them in and then put them right back out on the street. Here's my concern about the governor's plan. I don't know where people are supposed to go. If they do the legislation without figuring out where people are gonna be taken care of, I'm afraid it will result in what Gina said. We have to build the facilities. This is the problem that goes back to Reagan. When we deinstitutionalized people, we didn't build the community-based institutions that we committed to. So if that is not a part of the plan, I'm gonna be very worried that the only institution that is prepared to take care of people today, take care of people, that's a very loose term, is county jail, and that's unacceptable. That's all the time we have for this conversation. A big thanks to our three candidates are here, Gina Viola, Kevin DeLeon, and Karen Bass. Round of applause, thank you so much for being here. And a special thank you to everybody at KCRW and everyone at the LA Times that made this forum possible. And remember everyone listening, the statewide primary election is happening now, ends on June 7th, please vote. Ballots have been sent to every registered voter, but if you're not registered yet, there's still time to do so, so do so. Check out more coverage at kcrw.com, latimes.com, and please again, go vote. I'm Gustavo Ariano. I'm Anna Scott. Take care. Gracias. And thank you all. There's still more to this mayoral debate if you want to hear all of it. And if you want to do that, it goes on for an hour. Go to latimes.com slash debate and watch the recorded live stream video posted there. And that's it for this episode of The Times, daily news from the LA Times. Mario Diaz and Kinsey Moreland were the jefes on this episode, and our show is produced by Shannon Lynn, Denise Guerra, Kasha Basalian, David Toledo, Ashley Brown, and Angel Carreras. Our editorial assistants are Madeline Amato and Carlos Deloera. Our engineers are Mario Diaz, Mark Nieto, and Mike Heflin. Our editor is Kinsey Moreland. Our executive producers are Hasmin Aguilera and Shawnee Hilton. And our theme music is by Andrew Eben. And again, special thanks to my other audio bosses at KCRW for hosting this debate and for doing this with us. Teamwork, let's do it again soon. Like what you're listening to? Then make sure to follow The Times on whatever platform you use. Don't make us to Poochie a podcast. And of course, follow KCRW, although they're not Poochies by any sense of the definition. I'm Gustavo Ariano. We'll be back tomorrow with all the news in this month. Gracias.